Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is episode 105 of VRP Rocks, the ultimate classic rock podcast that says that my music is better than yours. Make sure to subscribe to VRP Rocks on your podcast app right now so you don't miss any of the big-name guests that I've got lined up for you with new VRP Rocks episodes dropping every single Monday. And if you're wanting validation for that claim, then I need only point to recent guests who include Steve Vai, Joe Bonamassa, a rare interview with Peter Frampton, Dee Snyder, Adrian Vandenberg, and Yardbirds legend Jim McCarty to name but a few. So go on, hit subscribe now, you certainly won't be disappointed. Now today's guest, well, wow. As well as his incredible musical pedigree, I can tell you now that he is an incredibly deep thinker, and that's reflected in the length of this episode, and I thank him for his time that he gave me, although I do think he enjoyed it too. Thank you for listening. God bless you, and thank you for the great questions too. Thank you. My guest is a Cuban political refugee, came to the US with his family when he was young and absolutely made the best of things. Inspired as so many were by the Beatles' appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show, my guest went on to play with Ozzy Osbourne, was part of Quiet Riot during their meteoric metal health era. He was part of the explosion of Whitesnake in North America as part of the band in 87, 89, those lineups. He also worked with the likes of Blue Oyster Cult, The Guess Who, Jeff Tate from Queensryche, Yngwie Malmsteen as well, and the legendary band Dio with Ronnie James Dio. An incredible list of bands. I am, of course, talking about the wonderful Rudy Sarzo. And in this interview, you're going to hear lots about his career. Of course you are. The Quiet Riot success, his friendship with Randy Rhodes, why Randy left Quiet Riot and the legacy that Randy left us with, the MTV explosion, his time in Whitesnake, and much, much more. But, as I said at the start of the show, Rudy is an incredibly deep thinker. So the first 25 minutes is, well, it's, it's heavy. Yeah. Rudy didn't want to talk about his career to start with. It's boring, he said. So we literally skirted around his life and career and talked about quantum physics, belief systems, AI, the rise of technology, and all that kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm being serious with you, absolutely truthful. It's a fascinating insight into what he thinks and, and what he studies. But I do understand, if you're just in this for the rock and roll, then you can skip forward to about the 26 kind of minute mark to hear just kind of the rock and roll stuff. But if you've got the time, then please do listen to the, the first 25 minutes or so, because it's a fantastic insight into the, the world of, of what Rudy believes in. So here you go. Please enjoy this really interesting interview with one of Hard Rock's great bass players, Rudy Sarzo. Uh, well, thank you so much for, for, for joining me today. I really appreciate it. We'll chat about your career and all the bands you've worked with and the people you've met and all that sort of stuff along the way, if you don't mind. That'd be, that'd be wonderful. That's kind of boring. <laughs> <laughs> Not for me and my listeners. <laughs> Let's move with something else. Go on, go on. Okay, okay. We'll, we'll talk about Loch Ness Monster. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, well, Rudy, it's an absolute pleasure to chat with you here on VRP Rocks. Um, so we're going to kick off with the Loch Ness Monster because that's, that's what you want to talk about. Yeah, I mean, have you, have you ever seen the Loch Ness Monster? Have you seen Bigfoot? Have you seen Sasquatch? 
Uh, no, but I play with Adrian Vandenberg. And that's as close as I. <laughs> <laughs> He's a big man. <laughs> He's a very big man, yeah. <laughs> I spoke between... with Adrian just a few weeks ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's a lovely, lovely man. He's even big on Zoom. I mean, you have to get like a, <laughs> like a special app to fit him in, you know, <laughs> the, in the frame. <laughs> I love Adrian. Oh, my God. He makes me laugh. Oh, we, uh, yeah, yeah, he's a good guy. He's a he's, good guy. Oh, he's wonderful. Wonderful. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, you know, I... You know, I believe in, okay, myths. Myths because it, it has not been scientifically proven to exist. But our our consciousness, to me, it's like UFOs. Mm -hmm. Okay, if you take five people who really, truly believe in UFOs and you take them out in, in the forest, they will see a UFO because it's manifested by their consciousness. You know, so a lot of the myths actually become true because once you, once the masses manifest in their consciousness something, it will appear, it will show up. You know, you can, you can, uh, I can say that about the Loch Ness monster and all these myths, and also things that used to be myths like science fiction. Science fiction is full of them, from Jules Verne. You know, to everybody that has ever written the science fiction novel, they come up with stuff. So they put it out there. People read it. And before you know it, you have the iPhone. <laughs> right? Very true. It was yeah. it, because it was it was thought of before it was manifested. It's like uh I I dabble because I just don't have the time to actually drop out from being a professional musician and go to the university and study quantum physics but i dabble in it i absorb as much information about it and as much information about the consciousness of the physicists the, the quantum physicists that do uh not only believe in it but are constantly doing experiments to actually this uh have one up on by that i mean okay for example most of einstein's theories have been debunked because it's been proven that what he he but see these are those theories is are the platform for things you know that later on are discovered so yes yeah einstein had to come up with the uh, uh theory, theory of re relativity in order for other things to lay on top of it as far as scientific facts but one one of them is let's say the quantum field you have you have uh you have waves which is the foundation of consciousness is where we come from and then you have particles and how they work is that the wave is always there but it must be uh looked at it must have been acknowledged for it to become a particle which is a thought a wave is a thought. We are all made out of frequencies, which is what waves are, frequencies, right? And what happens is a thought is a frequency that once it's acknowledged, you can actually manifest it. I mean, I'm looking around my room and I can tell you about things that that be were a thought before they actually became a material, okay. a particle, a material. You know, we're, we're all made of particles, stardust. You know, and uh, so, you know, it, it is, yes, to believe in something is a very personal, personal um, uh, state of being. Consciousness is a very personal consciousness. See, to me, everything, everything goes down to the consciousness, to going down to the quantum field where everything comes from, where we come from, where, you know, I'm... I'm a Christian, so I call it a God's consciousness. This is where God comes from and what connects us with God, our own personal consciousness, which our bodies, it's the pilot of our body. You know, like I just recently had a DNA DNA uh, test, you know, to, yeah, for my for my DNA background. Actually, it came from a uh, genealogy thing. Yeah, yeah. And it, it mostly had to do with... Uh, my mom was living with us, and there were certain things that, from her living with us, living with us at home, 
before she passed away in in June was that I got to go to the doctor with her a lot. Now, when she when she was living away from from California, she uh, she had been in Florida all this time. She would go to the doctor and she would not really tell me the results of certain things. But going to the doctor with her, it's like I learned her whole medical history, and I was like. I, I was like, wow, I didn't know that genetically these, her medical history is being passed down to me and, and to my brother. So I became very aware of that. So that's when I started saying, you know what, I want to, I wanted to like uh, ancestry.com, whatever, and see the result of my DNA. So I can, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 73 next week. This is the time when you start taking major precautions, you know, for your health, you know, what to eat, you know, and, and, and things that are genetically from the DNA pool of certain countries and cultures, you know, that we all carry with us. And certain things are like the Mediterranean diet, you know, for certain people mm -hmm. of, the, of the certain DNA uh, that works for them, you know. And so I, I had to like really start looking into into that, and it became very uh, very clear about things that I must keep keep doing because they they became natural to me, but things that I must stay away from, you know. So it's it's we're we're at a time in in the history of mankind that is actually bringing together spirituality and science. I know. I mean, I go and, and I and I, I follow them on, on social media and YouTube. Uh, scientists who have come to the conclusion: yes, there is a God, <laughs> just because they have gone in so deep that at the very end you're going to find the source and you go, "Oh, okay, yeah, it does exist." <laughs> Fascinating. I never expected to be speaking with it to, to you about this sort of stuff, but there you go. So, so on them some sort of lines. Then, did um, did you and you talk about genealogy and family and stuff? Did you and your brother, because you both became musicians, did you manifest from a young age the fact that that's what you wanted to be? You you could see yourself becoming a musician when you were older. That is a great question because it's it's a very dense, not just regarding my brother and me, but regarding our generation. See, the, mm -hmm. we became musician because basically in the United States, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, England had Beatlemania before it arrived in, in the United States. And it had the same effect. Uh, culturally, business, fashion, consciousness, you know, and... We became musicians because of that, and just everybody that I know from my generation became musicians because of that moment in time yeah. that the Beatles performed on Ed Sullivan's show. Ed Sullivan, now, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, in the United States, we had a whole different different uh, situation, <clears throat> meaning that I don't know politically or culturally or socially what the situation was in England at the time that Beatlemania happened. But in the United States, it was the perfect storm. And I'll tell you why. Uh, in November of 1963, John F. Kennedy, our president, was, was killed, right? Murdered. And that set the, uh, the whole nation in mourning. We were doom and gloom. It was like, wow. This is November, so we had Thanksgiving coming up right then, you know. And so it was like, wow, this is, you know, the family's going to get together, but, you know, it's not going to be a celebration. It's going to be almost like a wake because our, our nation was in mourning, you know. And then after that, you have Christmas, a very gloomy Christmas. Then you got New Year's. What you got to look for? We just, you know. So by the time that February, the youth hits, we bounce back. We got the future ahead of us and, and, and things are, are messed up. But we're we're gonna be part of the change, you know. Let's let's look for a brighter future. I had just turned thirteen, yeah. and the Beatles came on, and that was it. That was the light at the end of the tunnel, you know. Musically and and for for guys, us us males, we we wanted what the Beatles had. We had they had the adulation of the girls screaming at them. If the camera would have never panned to the audience 
and seen the whole Ed Sullivan Theater filled with girls crying. We wanted that. We wanted that, that, oh my God, you know, because up until then, I was just 13. Um, I was uh, a recent, uh, we came to the United States from Cuba in 1961. And uh, as a political refugee, because of communism, we came between, I don't know if you know your, a whole lot about the history, but back then in the 60s, we had the Cold War, and it was between the Bay of Pigs and invasion and and the the missile crisis that's when we arrived in night yeah 1961 uh uh september 1st 1961 and uh so you know i was just a total outcast when my family was relocated from miami which is the, our first our first destination was miami then we were relocated to new jersey which is uh, west new york right on the hudson river across from New York City. So it was like a suburb of the city, you know. And uh, I got there in 63. This happened with Kennedy. And in school, the first this is the first time that I that I that I experienced groups like just like the neighborhoods. We had Italian, Irish, German, you know, all ethnic groups, different. A block would be just the Germans in that block. You know, and the Irish and the other block. I never experienced that when I was growing up in Havana. It was all mixed. Everybody lived together. We're all Cubans. It wasn't like, you know, Irish American or German American or whatever. You know, it was like we're Cubans. You know, in Cuba. So I was kind of like there were not too many Latins, Latinos in uh, Hispanics in in that neighborhood yet. It's things have changed. It's mostly Hispanic now in West New York, New Jersey, but but not, you know, my God, you know, what, 60 years ago. And uh, it wasn't until that, that night, the next of uh, the Beatles playing on Ed Sullivan's show, the next day I went to school and including myself, all the kids, we got, we comb our hair forward. <laughs> you know, instead of having like the, uh, the Elvis yeah, look, you know, it. we went forward. And that was it. So we looked at each other, and it's like, you got it. Oh, you too. It's all you. You like the Beatles. Yeah, we're like, oh, yeah. So, you know, we started talking. And then I had a guitar, and it was like, you got a guitar. Oh, man, yeah, bring it over to my place. You know, so now I'm hanging with, like, all these never, uh, all these different ethnicities that I did not have the opportunity to, or none of us did. Uh, to break up, break out of that, and and actually just make some mingle and and make music. Music brought us together, you know that moment in time. So it it was definitely a, I think it was divine intervention intervention that that particularly happened. And except for probably George Harrison, I really don't think that any of them understood the spiritual impact that the Beatles were having. On the whole world and the history of mankind yeah. you know I, uh, another shift was that somehow some way their path collided with the maharishi yes. transcendental meditation nobody had done that what is this transcendental meditation i asked myself <laughs> <laughs> the beatles are into it it's gotta be cool you know and it wasn't until now recently that you know from doing research uh, about quantum physics that I wound up in the quantum field and and getting to know, for example, David Lynch, the director, he's got a foundation, the Transcendental Meditation Foundation. It's global. And uh, it it the common the common source of is going down to the quantum field. His uh, the president of his organization, John Hagelin, he's a quantum physicist. So now you got scientists beings teaching spirituality wow what took so long what what took it this long for that to happen but it's just that we happen to be living in a in a time in history that i think people are beginning to really realize about the 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 capabilities of humans to actually manifest their thoughts into realities see it, 
I believe in this. This is part of my consciousness. The fact that we are all manifesting at the same time, collectively, certain things, they become reality. And we happen to be in some sort of a matrix, a virtual reality that, we, that our consciousness is manifesting. But it's collective. You and me are part of this. And so it's everybody else that you go out on the street and you meet your family. You know, and it's and it's consciousness that you know it's energy, energy, frequency, thoughts, energy, that waves that we were talking about with the wave and the particles. It never, it's never destroyed. It never dies. It just keeps moving. So essentially, what happens is we experience this lifetime. You experience yours. I experience mine. Uh, we return these rental cars <laughs> at the airport. <laughs> we return the car, we go to the gate, and we wait for the next flight to the next next destination, which is the soul, the spirit. We'll do that, and then we we'll go on to our next experience. You know, and that that enriches the collective, the quantum field which contains all the collective information, all the collective experiences and knowledge without the existence of space-time. <laughs> it's all one. Everything is happening at the same time. Wow. You're above my pay grade now with some of this. <laughs> Fantastic. And just, just to tie some of this together then, um, something that's happened recently, the Beatles, um, we're talking about um, things that never die, never go away. Obviously the John Lennon thing and, and the, the demo that the Beatles have mm -hmm. taken and they've turned around and they've released this new single mm -hmm. that all four mm -hmm. worked on because obviously George was involved in the 90s when they tried to bring it back and AI and all this sort yes. of stuff. I mean, what's your thoughts on, on firstly, the song itself? It, it, it's, it's just been released. It is the last Beatles track that the four of them will work on and, and the fact that they were able to do it with, with the help of technology and bringing all this stuff together. Uh, I mean, I, I, I just listened to in the whole entirety yesterday. So, I, I mean, you know, it, it was Lennon was such a great, uh, uh, masterful songwriter. He could go anyway. Uh, he could write us something like... Uh, Let's say real love. There's a lot of musical uh, harmonic yeah. structures within that song. This new one seems to be a little bit more simple, yeah. more diatonic, and it's not as complex with uh, with substitutions. You know, uh, using you know uh, modal substitution within the song that the Beatles were masters at doing that. You know, with their songwriting, this seems to be more straightforward, which which is nice. It's beautiful. It's it's a beautiful song. And uh, I don't know. I, I I think that we need more of the Beatles '60s '60s British Invasion consciousness in our lives because we we're getting see we're passing on. The new generation hasn't had a a shift mm -hmm. yet, like. Yeah our generation experience you know kids in their 20s you know grunge <laughs> just i mean there has not been a real new musical movement since grunge since since the 90s so by the time they uh, they were born in the tw in the 2000s in the new millennium it hasn't occurred yet yeah. you know that certain beatlemania type shift that we had where where with the music leading the way, not politics, not even religion, but music leading the way like it did. Uh, many activists have used through history music, yeah, yeah, as their vehicle to express themselves and to make change and to make change. Look at the blues. The blues was born in the cotton fields from slaves it's the it's it's the foundation of our music you have to you have to really know how to play the blues in order to move on to play other things as a rock musician you know and so i i, I look forward to it and i i can see that the 
temptation of letting a software come up with something on your behalf. Yeah. Because the software has no yeah. consciousness. The software is just as intelligent as the person who programmed it. Yeah. it. Now, of course, yeah, of course, you know, they, they have quantum quantum computing now that can actually be uh, the, the point of quantum computing is that as, as, as it progresses to have the computer have its own consciousness, its own soul. But unless I believe that unless you actually have the soul and put it in the computer, like a human, like a soul that or a consciousness that would be in a human, but instead of a human going into a some kind of artificial intelligence, I don't see it happening. And then what? Because this is this is the the main issue. Computers will not procreate. I tried. I tried putting my my uh, my my Apple laptop and my HP laptop overnight <laughs> on top of each other. Nothing happened. No babies <laughs> yet. No babies. No babies. And that's why we're here to procreate in a controllable in, in a. In a in a family way, I mean, you know, I, I I love watching documentaries about animals because I learn so much from animals. I learned to be a better human being by by watching animals, and there's so many animals that understand the family structure. They remain monogamous, and usually, you know, birds are pretty much yeah. like that, and penguins. Penguins they have one mate for life, or until that mate passes away. And they suffer. They suffer the pain of not having that that mate with them, you know. And there's so many animals that will do that. So you know, procreation with a family structure. That's that's why we're here, and that's why there's so many books, such as religious books, Bibles for different for every single, you know, religious sect. They have their own instructions, you know. Because this is this is part of the order of the universe. The universe is not chaotic, you know. Even even the Big Bang is uh, scientifically right now. The perception is that there was an order to things that we still fo still follow out of the Big Bang. Otherwise, the universe would would have collapsed, would have collided against each other and just completely collapsed. And the reason my perception is that the universe expands it's because we believe that it's expanding collectively not just one person see sometimes it just takes like one person like you know uh, let's say uh plato or or any any of those greeks you know uh you know to actually come up with one thought and that one thought will remain as the catalyst for multiple thoughts that would manifest. And then those became, become a catalyst for other thoughts. Like, you know, uh, yeah, I just, yeah, I just don't, don't want to start going into something so deep that I can get myself out of, you know. Absolutely yeah. fascinating, absolutely yeah. fascinating, Rudy, honestly. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately, yeah. I'm, I'm here for a rock front uh, pretense as well. So um, if we could just come back to, to, to your career then and just... Um, Speak a little bit about uh, the early days. Obviously, with your brother, you were in a band, and then you knew Kevin DeBro, didn't you? From from earlier, and he, he gave you a call and said he needs you in the band. And was it a difficult decision for you to to leave the band that you were in with your brother to to head over to Quiet Riot? Uh, my brother and I we were playing uh, up until like nineteen seventy four, seventy five, in just club bands. You know, actually, we left Florida. Around '74, we went up north to New, uh, New, the New York area, a, a city called Utica, New York. And um, he got married uh, to uh, to our keyboard player, and uh, they both, you know, they settled down in Jersey. And I figure, well, it's time, for, you know, they're settling down. It's time for me to move on. 
and and that's what I did. That that was like the last time that we were actually in a in a band in the pursuit of of creating something for the music industry. You know, we were you know to get a record deal or something like that. So that's when I started on my own adventure that led me all over the place, winding up in Los Angeles eventually. And uh, in 1977, I, uh, I I went to this club and I saw Quiet Riot perform and I was very impressed. By then I had been touring the club circuit in, in the United States for about two years now. And I had seen just the every up and coming band and I thought that Quiet Riot had something that the other bands didn't have. They had a vision. A lot of bands, their vision was to be big in the club scene. Quiet Riot's vision that I, that their impression on me was that they were already an arena band that was playing in a club. And I was very impressed with everything, especially Randy Rhodes and the fan base that they had created. It's very hard in a, in a club circuit to create a fan base because usually in a bar, you know, the club, the, the band was the uh, the jukebox, you know, and and the people went there just to hook up, <laughs> basically. So you know, and if and if you, you know, and if you know, like the reason why my brother and I left Miami was because that the bar scene became more of a disco scene. So we had to play disco, and we were not disco consciousness-minded musicians. We wanted to rock, you know. And uh, so so that's what, why we left. But uh, but once you got to L.A., it was, you know, you, you know, if you wanted to really be considered as a serious musician by the industry in Los Angeles, you could not be in a, in a top 40 band. You had to write and, and record and make demos of original music. And that, that was it. You know, which meant, you know, getting some kind of job in the daytime and then at night that's devoted to to rehearsal if you have a, a local band and most definitely networking, going to places like the Rainbow, you know, the Sunset Strip, you know. So uh, so when when I saw Quiet Riot performing at, at the Starwood, I, uh, I bumped into Kevin after they finished their set. He was walking around the club and went up to him and... And basically, you know, I, I I had no idea or or qualms about you know or 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 drive to actually wanting to join the band. You no, know, these guys because I I have my own band at the time, and you know, and these guys they seem like yeah, they're together, they're a group. You know, things are things are tight. And anyways, like I mentioned, I was living with the band that I was in, so I wasn't about to like you know uh, break my 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 dedication to them, you know, because we have moved from out of state to, to come to Los Angeles, you know, so there was a lot of loyalty involving that. And these were, you know, these were my brothers, you know, my friends. And uh, so I just told them, Hey, you know, I've been around My name is Rudy. I've been touring the whole country and, and you guys are very unique, you know, just keep doing what you're doing. And that was it. You know, a year later, I was out of town. I was in Jersey when this happened. Uh, they uh, the 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 first bass player in the band, Kelly Garney, uh, he was out. He wrote the reason why he wrote about her in the yeah. book, you know. So he was out of the band, and they were looking for a bass player. I mean, they tried everybody in town, but they were looking for specifically somebody that played with their fingers, more of a uh, Greg Ridley or John Deacon style of bass playing, a little more. R&B more soulful and that's 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 where I came from you know playing in Florida and uh, so I I get the phone call a couple of days before I was scheduled I had my ticket already to go return to Los Angeles because the reason why I went to New Jersey is because I I ran out of money and I needed to make some quick money playing clubs I stay with my with my brother and and, and his wife uh, our keyboard player in the band and uh Got enough money and okay, I'm going back. And it just so happened that I got the phone call two days before I uh, was leaving, and so I just went over to. Uh, as soon as I got to LA, I went over and, re and uh, auditioned, and I got the gig. 
And it was a really exciting band at that point, wasn't it? In like the kind of late 70s. And it was spoken about at the same time as likes of Van Halen before they got their deal. And really two up-and-coming flash bands. But uh, um, Randy Rhodes, well, he left the band, didn't he? And he went off to, to Ozzy. And then a few years later, you joined him with Ozzy, didn't you? And um, it was at this point that it was absolutely... Um, crazy for Ozzy especially his career rejuvenated Blizzard of Oz was was massive wasn't it so what was it like joining uh, that band at that time for you yeah I mean it, it the only reason why Randy left Quiet Riot was because actually his mom told him listen if you don't take this opportunity right now it might never happen again and you just wind up being you know stuck in LA you know because what was happening in Los Angeles at the time is no no traditional rock bands yeah. meaning you know like what had happened before like the glam rock bands they were not getting signs as a matter of fact those glam rock bands like let's say queen they were like you know they were going in different directions musically you know a lot of bands were because of new wave and punk you know and uh, so we basically we hit it we hit a wall record companies just didn't care about us they called us dinosaurs. So it was just a career decision. It wasn't because of uh, any personal conflicts with anybody in the band at all, you know, not at all. And uh, so then, you know, so Randy left and, and he joined uh, Ozzy. And meanwhile, Kevin Dubrow put his own band together because at that time, uh, Choir Riot, the name, uh, it was not being used. You know, there was no Choir Riot. It was Dubrow. And as a matter of fact, it did not become Quiet Riot until I came back in the group. And Kevin said, okay, now we got two guys from Quiet Riot. Let's call it Quiet Riot. Uh, there is a book that documents that. It's, uh, it's called uh, Keep, Keep On Rolling. It just came out. And it's uh, the book was written by the, the Quiet Riot and... Dubrow fan club president, Missy Whitney. So she kept all the newsletters that she used to write to the fan clubs. And and the one, it, there's the one for October, which is when I officially left Ozzy to return to what became known as the metal health version of Quiet Riot, uh, announcing that I was back in the band and from this point on, the band was going to be called Quiet Riot again, you know. So, uh, yeah, and, and the, the reason why I did it was because once Randy passed away, I lost that Quiet Riot musical integrity that Randy was was the architect of, the catalyst for it. I lost that in when 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 he died. And I just lost the joy of making music, you know, and, and I needed to find that again. I needed to find my, my home. And I get a phone call from Kevin right before I was about to leave L.A., my home, to go and record the live Speak of the Devil record, the Black Sabbath re-recordings of, you know, of the Ozzy era with Ozzy and Brad Gillis and Tommy Aldridge. And I get a phone call from Kevin and say, hey, we're in the studio for a possible record deal. Uh, how would you like to come on down and record on uh, Thunderbird, which is a song that he wrote for Randy when Randy left Ozzy. I mean, left Quiet Riot to join Ozzy. And so I said, sure. So I came down and there's Frankie, who I have been playing with him since 1972. This is 1982. So for 10 years, Frankie and I, we have been waiting for this moment that we're actually in the studio, you know, and I played with him for for so long, you know, we moved to LA together, tried to make it in the music industry. We were touring in the Midwest area before that and, you know, based out of Chicago. And um, it took us like, you know, by the time we got to LA, it took us five years for that moment of, you know, recording Thunderbird. And then, of course, you got Kevin, who I played with him in the original Choir Riot, and then, and then I played with him in Dubrow. I lived with him, and I and I knew, you know, most of the music that wound up on Metal Health because that was written during the Dubrow period. 
So uh, I just went there to do one song and I stayed for four songs because we we tracked really fast because I knew the songs already from playing in Dubrow and Quiet Riot. The second song that I tracked was Slick Black Cadillac, which goes back to the to the Randy era of Quiet Riot and then a couple of uh, Dubrow songs. Uh, Let's Get Crazy and, um, and Love's a Bitch. And... You know, by the time I left the session, I was still a member of Ozzy, but I have I have recorded four songs, you know, that wound up on the record. And uh, so I, I, I go to New York a couple of days later, do the record with Ozzy, Speak of the Devil, then I come back to L.A. and I make the toughest decision I've ever made in my whole career, which to leave Ozzy, one of the biggest bands in the world, and they took great care of me. Sharon and Ozzy were wonderful with me for the complete unknown, which was quite a riot. But I knew that I got the joy of making music again. And as long as you follow that, you know, something that I learned from Randy, having that integrity, it's all about the music. I'm a musician and it's all about that. Of course, I have my family and I have to balance things. You know, I got to do the right thing for my family and remain, keep my musical integrity intact at all times. And you've mentioned Randy there. I know you've done a lot over the years to keep his name alive and keep his music front and center as well. And he still holds such a an incredible place in everybody's hearts for his music and his his ability and every everything he brought to people and his joy and everything like that. And his his music and his playing really does live on, doesn't it? Yeah, and and, and it's again I, what I consider a consciousness. Yeah, that I learned that from Randy. I'm I'm, I'm the only musician that got to play with him in both Choir Riot. And Ozzy, the only two bands that he, you know, that of renown that people know of, you know. And uh, he actually made some Japanese recordings yeah. with the uh, with with Quiet Riot. So uh and you know, the more the more people know about Randy and what made Randy's music so timeless the more they know they learn about his consciousness the more they're going to be able to take with them it's not just about the music it's about the consciousness that created that music you know that belief system you know of like you know having integrity in your life across the board not just with career but also in your whole life have integrity be your backbone yeah definitely and in terms of randy everyone knows his music and it, it's, it's fabulous playing and and everything he came up with there but in terms of him as a person i mean what was he like was he was he laid back was he was he driven was he serious was he funny what what kind of person was he because you obviously knew him really well yeah uh his demeanor okay if you're going to talk about his demeanor uh he had the demeanor which is what i really consider him a teacher because even when he performed live in front of thousands of people, he always held the guitar and he played it like he's showing this. This, this is what I'm playing. He's not like <laughs> hiding. Even away. though he yeah. was coming up with some, yeah, because you know he was coming up with some groundbreaking techniques the way that he played. So somebody else could say, oh, "I don't want anybody to steal," you know, what I'm doing. So I'm going to like when I move around and no, he had a clarity. He always kept. The fretboard, his fingering, his playing, very clear, leaning the instrument forward so you could get a closer look. And so Randy, he's the only musician I've ever played with that came from a musical family. Professors, okay. not just musicians, but professors. And they built a music school, which is still operating, it's called Musonia. In, it says North Hollywood, suburb of Los Angeles. And... I, I it's it's when I think back of Randy, it's hard for me to to to, to think of a time when he was not holding a guitar. <laughs> yeah. Let's say when, when we're flying, okay, we, you know, we're on a plane, he's not holding a guitar, or when we're going to the mall, he's not holding around. He, he's gonna he's gonna grab it and he's gonna play it and he's gonna be talking with you, smoking a cigarette and playing that guitar, <laughs> and that's how. That's that's where the conversation came from, you know. And so I so 
when I started teaching at Musonia, I, I got to see a whole different side of Randy because before that, only time that I would see him was either at the gigs or a rehearsal. And a rehearsal was very structured because we didn't have any, uh, a whole lot of time. We rehearsed the set forwards and backwards. And then we worked on any original song for about half an hour. And then we did it again the next day. Meanwhile, Randy had been already playing for eight hours at the school with he had a lot of students, you know. So all day long, that's all he did. He played. There was no distractions like, you know, social media or anything like that. No, it was just a focus on the music. And, um, you know, no distractions talking, discussing, you know, posting about politics or religion or, you know, who's going out with who and stuff like that on the internet. No, it's just, no. We, we, we couldn't even think of, it, of a time where humanity was going to be experiencing that. Uh, this is about 45 years ago. So with Randy, it was basically when I started teaching there, it's like, I, you know, I saw him play acoustic guitar, classical guitar for the first time. And I go, I didn't know you played that. And he says, yeah, it doesn't quite fit what we're doing with Quiet Rise. So I just play it when I'm here in between lessons. He would just, you know, sit yeah. there and practice and read. You know, he, you know, he he grew up with with professors, so he went through the whole academia of music. You know, just learning the fundamentals and building on it. You know, to the point that at at his age, uh, he already, you know, he had a, he he was teaching harmony theory, composition, sight reading, all of the above, just like a regular, you know, professor. You know, and um, so that is a side that I got to experience and really got became aware of his musical integrity because it, it was unstoppable, you know, and then everything else, how he carried himself, you know, I mean, I, it's, it's, it's I, I've never read anywhere online any ne negative comments about Randy Rose. And he met a lot yeah. of people, you know, he met a lot of people. He touched a lot of hearts. If a fan would wait for him after sound check outside the arena, he would always stop, talk to them, especially if they were students, you know, like people who were learning, you know, musicians who were in the process of, of learning. Uh, he would always answer questions. And as a matter of fact, I have a little story. One time we were, uh, we were uh, this is the, the Blizzard of Oz tour. And, uh, we were in Victoria, Canada, which is Western Canada, you know, around Vancouver in that area. And we were walking around. It was summertime. It was a beautiful day. And we were walking from the hotel to whatever the, uh, everybody was hanging, you know, the crew and the and the rest of the guys in the band. And we, Randy comes across this, this young man carrying a, a guitar shaped box, a cardboard box. And he goes to Randy. Oh, you're Randy Rhodes? And he goes, yeah. Because, you know, they knew we were playing the following day, you know, in uh, yeah. uh, in Victoria. So so he goes, oh, you know, I, I love your music and I've been listening to the record. And he goes, uh, you know, you know that solo in uh, Goodbye to Romance. Uh, can, can you show me that? Now, at that time, we had not added Goodbye to Romance to the set. So Randy goes, well, it's been a while since I played this, but uh, yeah, sure. So he picks up the guitar out of the box. The guy, you know, gives him the guitar. And he starts, like, trying to remember how it goes. And the guy goes, oh, that's okay. Here, let me show you. <laughs> so he shows Randy how to play it. And Randy looks at me, he's kind of, like, laughing. And he goes, that's the last time I'm going to give somebody a lesson in the middle of the street. <laughs> and we just carried on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wonderful memories. Absolutely um, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I'll never forget that. That's great. <laughs> oh, lovely stuff. Um, and then obviously, like you said, you, you, you moved back to, to, to Quiet Riot. And, and at that point, Metal Health became absolutely massive. What was it the first metal album to to be number one in the United States, multi platinum there and in Canada as well? And 
and that sort of thing. It kind of blew up, didn't it? So what do you think it was about that record and that time? It just seemed to click and everything kind of went perfectly for it. Yeah, uh, actually, it was the first debut by a, consider a metal band because, you know, we're talking 40 years ago, yeah, metal. Yeah. yeah, we were metal then, you know, uh, and uh, yeah, definitely MTV. An era, an era open up. I mean, all of a sudden, and MTV did not have enough content, not enough video from anybody. Those bands were not, it, was, it wasn't part of the budget. You know, most of the bands were putting their money into getting airplay on the radio because that's what that's where you got residuals from publishing. And re most record company deals included publishing. So the record company would say, wait a minute, I'm going to give you money for a video that's going to cost thousands of dollars and we're not going to see any return in publishing, quote unquote. But, but what happened is they started seeing return in record sales yeah. that included the publishing, the mechanicals in it. So they, ah, okay, we're good now. But they had to be shown that first. And our first video was for mental health. And that cost $10,000 to make. And then the next one, by then we had been on tour for a while. Uh, that cost about $40,000 to make, which was for Common Field of Noise. And that's the one that really broke the band, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, we were getting played every half hour, which is more airplay than if you were on Top 40 radio. Well, the only problem is that there were not too many subscriptions of MTV yet. But what started happening is outlets, like if you go to a mall, uh, stores will be playing MTV yes. on their screens. And that gave us exposure. And then, you know, bars, you know, like sports bars that had TVs would, would tune into MTV. So that really helped out a lot. Clubs did. And uh so the next uh, for the next record condition critical mama world crazy now that was two hundred and fifty thousand dollars <laughs> and i gotta add even though the record company puts up the money it was recoupable so the band funny. always yeah. wound up playing for that yeah yeah ah. and you are earning praise yourself obviously it's, it's nice to be part of a band that's it's going big and <clears throat> having platinum records and things like that but uh 1983 i think you were voted the best bassist by uh circus magazine readers or something like that and it's is that is that kind of nice for you to, yeah. to get the the personal recognition as well as being in a big band well yeah but you know, n not unless you just mentioned it, I, I don't even <laughs> think about it. <laughs> that was then. What am I doing now? You know, that's that's my biggest concern. Well, you know, that's what I focus on. Well, how can I make myself a better musician? I mean, before we we started this this conversation, I was just on on YouTube uh, taking some lessons. You know about parallel modes in the blues. <laughs> You never master the guitar, do you? Never okay. master it. Um, you never, you never do. do. You... It's it, it, it's a rabbit hole in a journey, you know. And it's like you're just going, you know. You just find you hit upon something. You go, <gasps> yeah. what about this then? You know, it's just like it's an answer that that creates another question. You know, that's it. It's always something else to learn. Absolutely. Yeah. And you yeah. mentioned uh, condition critical and a man were crazy now and and come on feel the noise and things like that. So so was was Kevin was the band? Were you all fans of kind of that seventies British glam kind of movement? Obviously Slade and T Rex and Sweet and all that sort of stuff. Were you, were you guys fans of that kind of music? Yes, and there were certain bands that stood out. You know, Quiet Riot that. That's 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 the, what's that's what the Randy Rose version of Choir Riot was. It was a Sunset Strip version of glam, of uh, glam rock. Yeah. I you know, and, and even before I got to LA, you know, that's why we had the collective consciousness. We I happened to be in Miami, but I was having, having the same influences while I was in Florida, and then later on traveling in the Midwest. My consciousness was the same as Kevin and Randy who were in Los Angeles. 
So when we got together, it was like, click. Yeah. Okay. We're, we're, yeah, we're of one mind thinking about what we like, our musical tastes, you know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, to me, the uh, that glam metal scene was as influential culturally and socially as as the British invasion. Um, let's carry on a couple of years into the 80s, if you don't mind. Um, just t- touch on, on Whitesnake, because that's another huge band that you were a part of. And is that, when you joined that band, did you, did you realize that they were sitting on a gold mine and, and everything was ready to explode for them? <laughs> no, nobody did. I mean, of course, there were certain people that believed in what, what was going on. Uh, that is a, that I would say of all the bands I've ever... Uh, maybe Ozzy a little bit because there was a lot of grooming going on for Ozzy from Sharon, a single, one single vision of what the Ozzy as an artist or an identity was going was to become. And that pretty much came from the mind of, uh, still does, of Sharon, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, with Whitesnake, it was the record company, it was definitely the management had a vision of the band, of the new band. Yes, yeah. Of the new band. Because we were basically, um, we came together to suit that vision. You know, and from from my perspective, I got, I became part of the vision because Whitesnake was the opening band for Quiet Riot in 1984. So, you know, I got to know David. He got to know what I was all about musically and image-wise. And they wanted MTV-friendly yes. Yes. musicians in the band. And uh, actually, I was asked to join the band before the 87 record was, was, was recorded or even written. Uh, this is in 1985. Tommy Aldridge and I did. And uh, since, like I mentioned, I have been on tour with with uh, White Snake uh, supporting, I was aware of the conflict within the band, and so I was leaving one band, Quiet Riot, to join. You know, I was gonna, I was gonna, I wanted to do something conflict free <laughs> with Tommy. He and I were starting something new. So when we got the call uh, to come to a meeting uh, for, with White Snake's management, I find out that. That John Sykes, amazing musician, wonderful, you know, great collaborator with David, but but there's a personality conflict there. Uh, hopefully someday they will resolve it. But as of 1985, <laughs> they had, and so I declined joining the band because I didn't want to leave one situation to join another situation. Then later on, John, after he recorded the album, he he wasn't there anymore, so it was just David, and I said, okay, yeah. I this is the time for me to uh to actually become a part of this, you know. So that that's how it came about. So that band was very, you know, you, you had to be you had to be a badass musician musically, but also you have to have that certain uh MTV appeal. As a matter of fact, it was very popular back then for bands who were MTV bands. To have a, a stylist mm-hmm. work with them, especially for the video. And on the first video, and it made sense because uh, we're working with that uh, with Fleur Thaymeyer. I mean, she was like the biggest one uh, of that period. And wonderful lady and incredibly talented. So the band, okay, we get the phone call to do the still the night video and so we haven't even rehearsed yet as a band it was just to make the video okay and so fleur the stylist comes in to come to my house and she goes through my closet all my old clothes from the, the band ozzy and choir right and she picks certain things and say okay bring this to the shoot tomorrow and she did that with every every musician and what, that's what you have in the first video. Things from our closet and suitcases because Adrian had just flown in from, uh, from, 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 uh, from Holland you know, to shoot the video. So she went through his suitcase and said, okay, bring this. And uh, 
So the so now by the time that we did here I go again, and and it's this love back to back. We have been now we're a band. We we committed. We committed to you know we were asked to be in the band. We say yes, and uh, we made a commitment. Now is okay. So now we're going to design some clothing for you guys that you can take on the road and also wear, wear for the video. And that's where I think Hero Go Again really defined the, the image of the band, you know. And, and uh, so there were a lot of business, business meeting management and record company people really, really involved with the image development of the group to make it as MTV friendly as possible. Incredible stuff. And it absolutely blew up, didn't it? Obviously the massive band and the album went many times platinum as well. And obviously you've been with Ozzy and you've been with Quiet Riot through Metal Health and everything like that and all all the, the huge highs from those as well. But but White Snake just seemed to, to, to explode at that period. And um what was it like then amongst the relationship of guys? Because obviously you knew Tommy and you'd known David from previous times, but it was a mix, wasn't it, when Adrian's there as well. So what was it like as a group? Did you feel like you were uh, an actual group or would it feel like individuals thrown together uh we got along famously i mean it was wonderful great company we were so happy to be playing together and to be you know again it went down to the music you know whatever the image was at the core of it all was it was a great musical band with some badass musicians and and uh, at the top of our game and it was just wonderful it really was you know from the from the very very beginning you know, and there was a lot of respect and a lot of uh, admiration for for everybody. You know, fantastic stuff. And uh, I realize I'm taking up a lot of your time. So, um, you're always really busy, and you're back with Quiet Right, and you have been for 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 a while. And you you do various projects and things like that. And it is the 40th anniversary of Metal Health, and crazy long year. And you've been doing shows here, there, and everywhere. And you're actually coming to the UK next year with with the, the Hard Rock Festival as well, Hard Rock Hell, I think it's called. Um, are you looking forward to coming over to these shows to play that one? Yeah, it's uh, absolutely. It's been too long. The last time I played there was uh, I did a little. Uh, um, like a club tour with uh, with Gunzo, which was a band that I had with Tracy Guns, and but but everywhere we went, they they put LA Guns on on the marquee, and it was like, no, this is Gunzo. There's another LA Guns, you know. This is before Tracy went back officially with the band, and um, so that was a few years ago, and I'm ready to come back to the UK, you know. Fantastic stuff. And and what else is in the pipeline for you then in the, in the near future, Rudy? Oh, more Quiet Riot. Uh, next year we celebrate 40 years of Condition Critical. We just keep the ball rolling. Keep the celebration going. Yeah. That's it. That's it indeed. We keep rock alive. Well, Rudy, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you and then learning all about you and, and diving into, into the matters beyond us as well, which is fascinating to hear about. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for listening. God bless you. And thank you for the great questions too. Thank you. There you go, the brilliant Rudy Sarzo there. I hope you enjoyed it. It certainly wasn't the run-of-the-mill kind of rock star interview, was it? So that's it for me in this week's VRP Rocks. Thanks again for listening. Make sure you subscribe to VRP Rocks on your podcast app so that you get every single episode that come out every Monday. Loads more brilliant guests coming your way over the next few weeks. Please leave VRP Rocks a five-star review on the podcast app that you use. It makes a big difference. It really does. Check out VRP Rocks on YouTube as well and give us a like, follow, subscribe on the social media channels. Again, just search for VRP Rocks. A big thanks to everybody who interacts every single week with me across all the channels. I love hearing from you. But until next week then, take care. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72 and other sought after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report. And you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, 
you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 